Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. A few days ago, I got a call from a longtime old friend, Gary. Gary Harris lives in, where is it, Manassas, Virginia now. And Gary grew up with me. His, his older brother was one of my best friends. And I've talked about his brother, Dave Harris, from time to time. In fact, Dave's going to come down and help me frame up my addition to the summer home that I'll be putting in next summer. <laughs> I'll get the footings and foundation in this year. And Anyway, Gary called and said, hey, Franz, uh, there's a great deal on chartering a boat down in, and he gave me the name of the island. I said, I'm not sure where it is. And I think he said Panaria. I said, Panaria, Panaria, Panaria. And I couldn't remember the names of the islands. I said, well, now where exactly is that? And he said, well, that's just north of Sicily. I said, ah, the Aeolian Islands. And he said, what do you think about it? And I said, well, Gary, let me tell you about my experiences that I had in the Aeolian Islands. It's the worst (laughs) sailing experience I've ever had in the entire time I've sailed in the Mediterranean. The word Aeolian means windy, and that was the experience I received when I was in the Aeolian Islands. Now, the first time I sailed down through there, when I was sailing the boat down from Capri, I've talked about spotting Stromboli from 30 miles away. So I'm not going to repeat that story here, but I may start repeating stories, and you'll just have to live with me or turn me off. But anyway, so the first time I sailed down from Capri, it was dead calm, dead calm. And so I sailed all, I left early in the morning from Capri, sailed all day long, all night long, not a breath of wind, motoring all the way, and finally arrived, um, I went by Stromboli early in the morning and continued on to Volcano. I was headed to the town of Portorosa on the north coast of Sicily where I needed to pick up my next crew. So I continued on to Volcano and anchored in what was known to be not a particularly good area for anchoring and there was not a breath of wind at all that night. And then I continued on down to Porta Rosa on the north coast of Sicily uh, the next day. And eventually my crew joined me, my new crew that I was going to pick up. And then we sailed back to Volcano. And then from that point on, it was windy, 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 windy. And the problem with the Aeolian Islands is they are volcanic islands. In other words, there's very, very few places to anchor. It's too steep close into shore. There's very little protection on most of the islands. And the islands I visited were really only Volcano, Lapari, and Panaria, or Panaria. So I did not get over to Salinia or Felicity. And the reason I didn't get over to those other two islands is, number one, Felicity didn't look like it had any anchorages at all. And Selena didn't look particularly interesting. And also, <laughs> the winds were coming from the north, and I didn't want to buck against the winds. 
So I told Gary of the experiences I had. We got up and we spent the first night on Volcano in the middle of the night. The winds came up, blew the boat next to me ashore. The next morning, the wind died down. We sailed around Lapari, and the day after that, the wind came up again, and we were port-bound in Lapari for a couple days. Then the wind moderated a little bit. We went up to Panaria, and in the middle of the night, we got blown out of that anchorage. Again, there's not very many good anchorages, and they're deep anchorages as a general rule. We ended up back to Lapari because it was really the only island in the Aeolian chain or the Aeolian group that really had any anchorage at all. And even that was a very deep anchorage, which led me to buy an electric windlass the following year. And we never did get out to Selena or the other island, Felucidi, Felicudi, Filicudi. I don't know how they pronounce that. Filicudi, Felucidi, F-I-L-I-C-U-D-I. I'm looking at Google Earth while I'm talking. Now, eventually we left uh, the Aeolian Islands and we sailed to the mainland town, or I should say the island town, the Sicilian island town of Cephalu. And Cephalu was a delightful little town, really a delightful town. And from Cephalu, I took a bus over and visited Palermo. And I decided I didn't really want to take my boat to Palermo. It didn't look like that interesting of a town to take a boat to, but it was interesting to visit uh, by land. So Cephalu was interesting. Porta Rosa was just one big, huge marina. And what I found more interesting on Sicily was the east coast of Sicily, from the Straits of Messina down to Terramina, down to Catania. Catania turned out to be just a gorgeous town. I really enjoyed Catania. And then, of course, to Syracuse. So I suggested to Gary that if he were to charter a boat in Sicily, I'd, I'd recommend that he might charter a boat in, let's say, Messina or Terramina or Syracuse and sailed that part of the island and not necessarily the northern part of of Sicily. And and I did not encourage him to charter a boat in the Aeolian Islands based on my experience. Now, he might charter a boat and go there and have a delightful time. But the problem I found with the Aeolian Islands was the anchorages were few and far between and they tended to be very steep deep anchorages. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. That's going to be about the end of this introduction because I want to get this third of the three episodes of my interview with Brian Toss out. So this will be the last of the three episodes. And the next week we'll have an interview with Jack Andrews and his wife, Julie, about their upcoming trip. They're planning for their upcoming year sabbatical sailing primarily in the Caribbean. One other thing Gary did tell me, which really surprised him, and this was an eye-opener for him, is he said, Franz, when I called up Sunsail, they said I have to have a certification. Now, Gary has chartered boats oh, all over the world. He's chartered boats in, oh, in the Caribbean several times. He was a, a scoutmaster, and he chartered a boat and took the Boy Scouts down uh, for a week sailing in the Caribbean. He's chartered a boat in Thailand and has taken his family down there. And he's got enough experience that he pretty much knows what he's doing. He did disclose to me that he's very nervous about anchoring. So when I told him about the deep anchorages in the Aeolians, he said that pretty much does it for, for him. He wasn't really interested in it at that point in time. 
But he was surprised that now, in spite of all of his experience, he has to go get a certification. I said, yeah, that's pretty much what's happening in the charter world. When I first chartered, there were no requirements for certifications. And now it appears that it's becoming more and more required. And it's just like when I was in Greece this summer, I used to be able to rip motor scooters all the time without any trouble at all. Now they want to see that my license has a motorcycle endorsement on it, which I don't have. So now I've got to go find a motorcycle and get a motorcycle endorsement on my driver's license so I can rent scooters in Europe now. Boy, don't we love bureaucracy. Anyway, so he said, okay, I guess I'm going to have to get the certification. And I, he said, don't you have a course? And I said, yes, I do. It's not going to help you pass the examination except for the written portion. Gary's a smart guy. He can pick up the written portion without any any problems at all. He already knows it, but he may need to learn some terminology and, and a few things. So I said, I can help you with the written portion with my exam, but I can't teach you how to sail. You already know how to sail. Go out there and just go get your certification. So he's going to go ahead and do that. Which brings me to my quick advertisement. If you are studying for the American Sailing Association ASA 101, the basic keelboat certification, the ASA 103, the basic coastal cruising certification, or the ASA 104, the bareboat certification. I cannot teach you how to sail, but I can teach you how to pass the written portion of the examination in the audio series that I put together. They're available at the website, medsailor.com. If it's of any interest to you, I think I do a pretty good job of teaching you what you need to understand to pass the written portion of the exam. Now, if you're just a beginning sailor or a wannabe sailor, first thing you really want to do is learn the terminology. Go pick up some books that teach you the sailing terminology or go get my ASA 101 course because it'll teach you the sailing terminology. I may talk about certain parts of a boat in this podcast, and if you don't understand the terminology, you're going to get lost fairly quickly. So with that quick advertisement out of the way, let's get on to the third and final interview with Brian Toss. I hope to catch up with him again at some point in time, but this is it for right now. But the point is there that the more efficient the terminal, the more it approaches not weakening the wire at all, the bigger the safety factor you can have, the deeper the insurance policy you can have for a given wire size. You don't have to go up a size of wire to compensate for that weakening effect. You'll have more reserve strength uh, to oppose the corrosion and fatigue that you might that you will inevitably get. Right? Mm-hmm. You'll be, be staying further from the possibility of a dismassing at any given time. So the grail in yacht rigging and, and all forms of rigging, industrial theater and all forms of rigging, the grail for wire termination is 100% efficiency. We've got it with well poured sockets. The next time you ride an elevator. I don't know if you write elevators, but next time you do, you're probably writing on a poured socket terminal. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where they basically have this fitting in that's a socket. You spread out the wire inside the socket, yep. and you pour molten zinc, as I recall, into yep. it. Is you that right? Pour molten metal in, but nowadays they use a two-part glue. Not epoxy, but a, a two-part glue. That's okay. Important. Okay. That same principle. Yeah, spread them out, fill it with this stuff. It sets up. It can't pull out. 100% efficient, reliably. Uh, likewise, good swedges are at or near 100% efficiency, uh, rotary switches, especially over time, but even Kearney switches, wire technic switches, if you do them right, pretty reliably at or approaching 100% efficiency. 
Um, like I say, Norseman, on the test I've seen, has never approached that. Stalox, I've seen breaking in the mid-90s. And Hain has some claim, although, again, that's what we're hoping to confirm or deny, to 100% efficiency. The first time that's happened. Now, I could. This is a little bit of rope geek talk, so just bear with me. Um, owing to the peculiarities of manufacturing, there are two strengths to be concerned with uh, for a wire rope, or a rope rope for that matter, but let's stay with wire. One is the actual strength of that wire. That is, if I put a terminal on, whatever it is, that won't weaken it at all, um, but, you know, just, just doesn't produce, introduce any distortions, stress risers, and I pull it on a machine and it breaks at 10,000 pounds, that is the actual strength of that wire, right? Right. Good. But when you go to sell that wire, they're not going to ask you to destruction test and prove every single batch and terminal because it destroys the wire, right? So <laughs> they will, they will uh, as there is established, uh, different standards, ANSI and others, um, uh, a rated strength, which your wire has to be at or above. I think in this country it's still, there's no negative percentage, um, but internationally, it can actually be slightly below that rated strength in random testing, uh, you know, just random batches, um, and you can then you can sell it. Great. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've got a wire that is 20% stronger than rated. Its actual strength is 20% more than rated strength. Okay. And you put a Norseman terminal on it, and then you put it on a machine, and it breaks, and then you can claim as people have, that this is 100% efficient because it broke at 100% of the rated strength. Okay, which is 20% less than... Less than the actual strength. Right, okay. So you've given up something to satisfy this thing, and it may be that 20%, well, certainly that's less safety factor than you could otherwise have for the same wire. But maybe that 20% meant you could come down a size in wire with the same safety factor, you know, and therefore your rig was lighter and cheaper and just as strong relative to the load, and just as safe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're sailing better and reefing less often and sailing more efficiently and spilling less coffee, right? Right. So we just don't have the, the information, at least in yacht rigging wire, at this point. And I'm hoping, with a very small sample set, I will acknowledge, I can only, only afford to break three or four of each type. Um, uh, to do, we got uh, from sailing services in Florida, we got a series of things. One was... Uh, some uh, pieces of wire with rotary swedges on both ends. Uh, some of them have sealant in them, some of them don't. And we're just gonna make sure the sealant, which prevents internal corrosion, doesn't uh, allow the wires to pull out of extreme loads. So that's gonna be one piece of information. And then the ones without sealant in them, we can count on to be at or near 100% efficient, that's gonna be our benchmark. And then from the same batches of wire in quarter inch and 5 sixteenths, so there's in the same run, so we can assume that they are the same actual strength. Because, you know, batches vary from run to run. Mm -hmm. Strengths vary, right? Um, we are we have a swedge at one end, and we're going to put a Hain, a Staylock, or a Norseman at the other end. And then we're going to put them on a testing machine and break them. And we'll see how they break relative to the actual strength of the wire as tested with the swedges. Okay, okay. And then we'll have some... Like I say, it's a limited size sample, but I'm hoping it'll be consistent enough to 
be representative and give us an idea of where to go. Uh, your readers might, your listeners might not know, but uh, Norseman recently stopped being made. Um, no great loss, I think. Um, but they're still out there in the world. And people, I think, might want to know, uh, well, what have I got here? How is this affecting my wire? When, I, when it comes time to re-rig, for instance, maybe this report will say, yeah, go ahead. It's better than we thought. Use them again. Um, or they might think, wow, this is terrible. I don't want to use this terminal anymore. Or who knows? And the same could be said for the Staylock and the Haynes. This is still, um, up to this point, at least uh, in publications, I don't think anyone's actually tested the actual strength of the wire. They've been claiming data based on the rated strength. Now, when is this going to be published? And Good where is question. it going to be published? Oh, in Practical Sailor magazine. Okay. okay. And they are they're buying the materials. Um, and uh, I'll be taking them down to a, an outfit in Seattle, uh, testing lab, uh, and getting them broken on a big machine. Not hard for them. This wonderful old industrial warehouse. I don't know when this will be out, but I hope to be able to do this break as early as the end of this week or perhaps next week. Okay, okay. So, Brian, t- tell us about your services and your website and how people okay. can get a hold of you. Sure. I've been going on for a while here. But the um, best place to reach me is through our site, briantoss.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. Toss, like throw it in the air, T-O-S-S, dot com. And um, you can find out stuff we do there. I recommend uh, people visit uh, the, the Spar Talk, which is our forum. You can ask or answer questions about rigging. People from all over the world or and show up there various questions about rigging. It's a page we started uh, for questions that were too short to charge consultation for. And uh, on the other hand, you can also go to our consultation page and uh, I do a lot of email consultations. People send a list of questions and a bunch of photographs and I render an opinion and they send me you know, a payment for the ether. Um, and then I also do actual on-site live consultations, go to visit boats um, as close to home as possible. I don't like to travel, but like I say, I just got back from doing a rig survey on the Spirit of Dinner Point. Um, I do a lot of rig surveys uh, on, on vessels and uh, go aloft for them and then get a written report. Uh, we still rig boats. I'm increasingly in my... Uh, later years at this point, um, doing more of the consultation, uh, instruction, workshops, uh, expert witness work uh, was one of my favorite things and also one of my least favorite things. If you guys somewhere out there hearing this, you know there's an accident, you wonder why it happened and who's to blame, what do we do about it? You know, it's a very litigious society. Um, it's, it, it's unfortunate that this work involves someone getting killed or injured, basically, or people just don't come hire me. But if it happens, um, I think that an expert witness doing their job right will um, shortcut the entire process. Uh, Voltaire once said, I've only been ruined twice in my life, once when I won a lawsuit and once when I lost one. Lawsuits are horrible things. But if someone who who can figure out what happened and write a report that isn't about the person who hired them, but write a report about the circumstances, 
then it's something that both parties can look at and say, oh, oh, I see, and stop arguing, and then and just stop the whole process. And that's the ideal. So I just want to say it's, it's, it's like a puzzle for me um, that can also you know, benefit people to try to just, what is the information here? Right? So I love doing that. Um, so increasingly more consultation and uh, writing and teaching, but we still rig actual boats. Uh, we'll be putting a spinnaker track on a good size hunter, I think, today. Um, and, you know, re just again, cruising boats are our specialty. Yeah. So uh, go, to, go to the website. Uh, Want to email me directly? I'll say uh, right to rigging at ryantoss.com. But please, uh, uh, it's just, it's at the consulta consultation address, just you know, like a hi, how are you address. Um, and we have a catalog. We sell tools. Uh, and also, it's where you can sign up for our workshops. So I have a climbing harness. I help design uh, various tools like uh, rigging pliers and uh, splicing splicing gear, like splicing uh, wands, we call them, uh, with instructions that are a little different. There's no fid lengths and marks, as many marks to make. Trying to make it simple, simple enough for sailors. So you can get those those things from us as well. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, you know, a lot of my cruisers or a lot of my sailors might be wannabe cruisers or they are cruisers. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a, a kit put together that you recommend that the cruisers would have for basically probably running rigging more than anything else? Or Yeah, and that kit will vary from boat to boat, not just from the size of the tools. Uh, you know, the, you have different sizes of wands. There's usually one wand fits each, you know, and all the ropes on one given boat. But also, you know, what kind of rigging is in it where, and, and where they hope to go and for how long, you know, just how independent do they want to be, uh, how much skill do they want to acquire? So, so yes, but I, I try to do it on a case by case uh, basis. So the best way is just to get a hold of you and yeah, they say, yeah. "Hey, uh, this is what I want to do, and what do you recommend?" Yeah. Then, right. And if you want something like that, probably the way to avoid me charging you for that uh, opinion, uh, write to catalog at bryantoss.com. Okay. And they'll just relay it to me, say, "What do you think for this person?" And then if I need to follow up, I will. But this just you know, keep it simple, and I want to get the right tools for the right boat for the right person. You know. And sometimes that involves talking people out of a tool. Like, you'll never use this. Stop. You know, <laughs> you don't need this one. <laughs> I want that rigging vice, but I'm not going to use it. So don't right, yeah, that, right? yeah, please. It would be silly. <laughs> um, and also, there are tools that we don't sell, which I recommend. So, for instance, there Nipex, that's K-N-I-P-E-X, Nipex, makes uh, parallel jaw adjustable pliers, which mm -hmm. are, we call them our magic pliers. They're, they act like a socket. I hardly ever use socket sets because I've got these parallel jaw pliers. They're just amazing tools. You can look them up. You can buy them on, on the interwebs. Um, for instance, so we'll tell people how to find those things uh, that, that we don't sell, but which people need to hear about if they mm -hmm. want to do it. Likewise, rope selection. That's more of a consultation thing. What's the right rope for your boat, for your halyards, for your sheets, for your, anything on your boat? There are, there are rope geeks in labs actually playing with all these different materials and how to put them together and how to twist and braid them um, to get the right tool for specific jobs. And I like to help people find that for their for their boats, as opposed to some place we've all been where you, you need to replace this halyard and it, it's got this particular color on it and you go to the chandlery and there's this wall of rope and you look at it and think, what, do, what am I going to do with which, and you sort of lurch towards the one that looks most like what you've got in your hands that's had remnants of your old halyard, right? Mm -hmm. And then it may or may not be a good choice. Well, it turns out there are ways you can you can actually narrow down the focus of what you need in terms of material and construction and cost 
before you get to the Chandler V, and then just go right to the piece you need. And then you get a boat that is scaling better for less money or no more money, right? Frequently uh, less money. Um, and you know, the, you know, the characteristics are, are better. So get back where we started. Uh, those three-strand mooring lines that you uh, <laughs> that you were splicing up, I tried to show how to do a splice for three three-strand rope, uh, twisted rope, um, as efficiently and uh, sensibly as possible. And again, destruction tests and field experience has borne that out. As one of my students uh, in the Coast Guard once said, "I reserve the right to be smarter than I used to be, and not as smart as I'm going to be." <laughs> so since I wrote that book, I've learned a lot more about energy absorption, basically, and how rope construction uh, uh, determines energy absorption. So for mooring lines and anchor roads, I'm much more likely to recommend a single braid rope, which um, um, not be too complicated about it, just basically acts more like a shock absorber and less like a spring. Okay. okay. So it's just as strong as three strand typically. But those splices um, are a pain. It's much funner to build a. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, topologically it can be a bit more of a challenge until you get to know it. Uh, although some of them are just as a taper and tuck. You just bury a length of tapered material back inside the rope and call it done. It depends I'm, on the rope. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, I've done. Uh, braided splices, but I don't feel as comfortable with braided splices. No, and few people do, but I can tell you, well, part of it is because it's incredibly complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but part of it, a large part of it, is because of the instructions. Um, you might remember this, if you were traumatized by these instructions. Um, they'll say, make mark L sub 5.9 three-fifths of a medium fid length from mark M16. Yep. And what? What am I doing? And then what's a medium fib length? And what's, you know, why is it a fib length, right? So let's, let's not do that. I, I, so I tried to detoxify that experience to the best of my ability. It's still a complex splice. It still requires some uh, involvement and attention and practice. But what if we just say a splice works because it generates friction without weakening the rope? Right? right? Mm -hmm. Give a bowline generates friction, that's how it works, but it weakens the rope at least 40%. So if we want more efficiency and more compact and security, compactness and security, we're going to go for a splice. Okay, how much friction do we need to generate? Well, enough that no matter how hard you pull, either under extreme load or an oscillating load or shock loads, no matter how hard you pull or how you pull, it won't pull out. Sound good? Right. I wonder how much that is. Well, um, with nylon rope, it might be six tucks. That happens to give you enough friction, right? Mm -hmm. With braided rope, it might be clear space and long-term memory here. It might be for almost for Dacron, nylon, polypro, the standard synthetics, 24 times the diameter of the rope. Okay. So if it's half-inch rope... You need 12 inches, right? Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, you can a chart that shows that in uh, increments that you can get, like, how much is 24 times 7 sixteenths, right? It happens to be 10 and a half inches. But you can use a calculator to do that. You can look up at the chart. But notice, please, that 10 and a half, or, yeah, inches, is one and a half times 7. Okay. So 7 sixteenths, you take the numerator, you add half again more, that's how much you bury that's 24 times the diameter of the rope. 
Let me ask you a quick question, um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking of this on my own personal boat, because when I originally rigged my boat, uh, my running, my halyards, I did wire-to-rope splices, and Marsh Party taught me how to do these wire-to-rope splices. Yes. And, um, and, you know, they're, they're tricky, but, you know, once you yeah. learn how to do them, you can, you yeah. can do them. But nobody yeah. does that anymore, right? Oh, I do that. Oh, uh, do you? Do, do, people, do people still do wire-to-rope, or do they yeah, just they, go with they, the... Uh, Use the materials. You got your uh, the load is on your uh, low stretch, small um, uh, portion of the of the program, which is the wire, and that segues wonderfully alchemically, mysteriously into this fat rope tail, right? With a 90 efficiency in that at that intersection, and then it's all about uh, proportioning it so there's never any wire on the winch, which I hope you did. Mm-hmm. You end up with just rope on the winch, right? Great. So people often put wire on the winch because they don't trust the splice. And then you get this mangled wire, and it's hard to use, right? And that, and that's why a lot, that's why a lot of people stopped using wire to rope splices. Not because there was anything wrong with the splice, but because people didn't trust it and mangled their wire and mangled their winches and said, "This is ugh, terrible. We can't do this anymore." Right? Right. So that's bad. Um, but the other reason people don't use it anymore is that other materials can be used instead, which are even better, i.e., high modulus rope. So right, and that and that's what I've got on my boat. But I'm let me tell you, I'm I've I've got a whole new set of halyards on my boat. But every year I go back, I say I don't want to put this on. I don't want to run this up. And the reason I don't is because what I'm worried about is my sheave at the top of the mast has been mangled by this wire rope over yeah. the years, and it's going to just wear through this new halyard material in no time flat. Absolutely right, it will. So let's back up a little bit. Okay. Um, first of all, you can do an all high modulus halyard. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the simplest possible thing to do. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, uh, when your sail is hoisted, there will be 40, 50 feet of very expensive rope sitting on the deck doing nothing. Right. You just paid X dollars a foot for this stuff. It's just sitting there. If it's your jib halyard, it always sits there, right? It's never in use. You've just wasted all that money. Right. So, again, this has been around long enough. People are playing with it. You can splice a cheap, fat tail onto a skinny, strong, high modulus rope as well. And um, and and somebody's here with something funny. Okay. Um, and and then when the sail is hoisted, you have the cheap rope sitting on the deck. Now, yep. sort of like the wire and rope halyard, right? Mm-hmm. You can do uncovered uh, high modulus rope or covered high modulus rope. It'll be much lighter than wire. So again, you've got some better in, uh, performance on your boat. The splice is going to be usually much cheaper than a wire to rope. Um, connection and that leaves the ship at which point i look urge you to look up zephyr works that's z as in zebra zephyr e-p-h-y-r works with an e w-e-r-k-s zephyr works okay and my friend ed luchard builds ships to any dimension quickly and efficiently with an oil light bronze bushing and he's made that to replace mangled ships that uh, same mangled ship by the way is also hard on your wire right okay so whether you're going to rope or that if you're staying with with wire you might want to rebuild that shoe okay now if i were to re redo my standing rigging would you go with uh synthetics now would you go with the uh with the rope you would oh yeah really yeah it's always got recommend first anymore these days Hmm. Uh, wire is not bad and and we especially well if it is dimensioned correctly uh, and it comes with good metallurgy which you can get which you also have to get proof of, right, um, and terminated correctly and tuned correctly. It's a good tool. 
Um, but it's kind of hard to argue with something that weighs a fraction as much, lasts longer, and doesn't cost any more. Right. The, the only arguments really against it, again, if you do it right, which is just a whole different learning curve, is that it's still a tool that, that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, including professionals. And I know from my own learning curve that I had some, I probably still had a few things to learn. <laughs> I hope so. Um, you got to do it right. You got to make sure it ends up the right length. You got to make sure it's tuned correctly. Uh, and off you go. But if you do that, it's, it's just, a, I think it's a much better tool for just about every boat. All right. Now, how, uh, how when are you going to give a workshop on how to do these terminal splices? Because I'm not going to fly you over to Turkey <laughs> to do this for me. Oh, uh, hmm. Well, I have done. Um, in our rig your boat workshop, we always have at least one splice we do. And it's like the consensus of the group, which one we land on. That could be one of them. Mm. It's a very simple splice. Actually, it's either very simple or incredibly thud simple, um, depending on which place you mm -hmm. choose. The very simplest one is you make a tail three times as long as the aforementioned uh, 24 diameters, mm -hmm. the 70 diameter berry. Or, uh, and that's longer than most people bury, by the way. That's actually an actual long berry compared to what's in an industry standard. Um, but it's easy to calculate, right? Right. So taper the rope and bury it. And then do a little light stitching so it can't fall out when there's no load on it. By burying, you mean just tuck it back up? Tuck just it back bury in? bury it back inside of itself. It's just a single braid rope. Okay, okay. You just taper it because you don't want a big stress riser at the end. Right. Weaken the rope significantly, 10, 15 or percent or more. Um, so you do this taper at the end, and there's instructions readily available from me. I've got various books and videos on splicing, right? Lots of stuff. Okay, now, now hold on, because I'm looking at your website. I'm not seeing any videos. Where's the videos? Oh, oh. hold on. There it is. I take oh, it good. back. There they are, right there. Okay. Oh, good. What a relief. Yeah, there's lots of videos, including fancy rope work and string tricks for magicians and wire rope splicing. Maybe you could try that again watching the video. Um, so they're on there, right? Okay. Um, that's the simplest one, just and that's how most people do it in professionally and otherwise. Just taper it and bury it, light stitching, done. Um, not hard enough for me, so I like to do what's called a locked brummel, uh, which is an initial kind of complication at the very beginning, uh, and then the same bury. And that's what I find to be a not stitch dependent splice. Uh, if you do it right, it's the same strength um, as a, just a plain bury, and it's a bit more reassuringly secure. But either one of those is a viable option if you do them correctly. And it's it's not it, it doesn't hurt, of course, to see it done. Right. Lots of little tiny little tricks and details. But now um, now are, are these in, in your video set? Are, do you show how to do this in your video set yet? Yeah. Okay. It's in the it's in a, a rather non new video. Uh it, the, the person in there looks like my son, I think, at this point. Um, but the technique is still valid. Okay, I'm looking at your the, the videos. Which one is this one then? The DVD. Rope, rope the, uh, which one? Rope splices, uh, splicing uh, rope. Uh, I don't know what it's called. Okay, all right. I'll look for it and see what yeah. I can find then. Okay. Please. Post a link, as they say. Yeah, I will. I'll post a link to your website, and then people can explore from there. Okay. All right. All right, Brian, thank you so much. So so do you think uh, a do-it-yourselfer like me, because I've always been a do-it-yourselfer except for doing my splicing on my original standing rigging, yeah. could could they could a do-it-yourselfer do their own standing rigging then on if they're oh. re-rigging their boat then? Yes, asterisk. Okay. Um, let me say, um, up until around the 1830s or 40s, every piece 
of standing and running rigging in every sailing boat in the world was made of rope, of vegetable matter. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the fabrication machinery was involved human hands and eyes and brains. That the rig lived in the people, in the crew, and in the rigging gangs, right? This is mm -hmm. very organic, in, in, innate to the community experience. And then wire rope came in, and that was originally still hand intensive, but inquired increasing amounts, required increasing amounts of machinery, just in the rigging devices, and especially tools and clamps and such that weren't needed for rope. And, um, and then uh, further machinery came in. And every step of the way, people were pushed out of the rigs, uh, often happily so. I don't have to deal with that stuff anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Until you get to a point where um, people are just not involved. It's all about somebody running a machine, which is great. It's very efficient. It's economically sensible. Um, but it isn't very human. And now we have materials that are at least four times stronger than the, the hemp of our ancestors, per size, far more durable, can't rot. And we once again have the opportunity to get back into our rigs, which is great uh, endorphin releasing idea. Right, yes. It's a, a wonderful thing. But along with that comes the responsibility that comes back to you as well. Right. If a bad swedge pulls out because someone didn't check their specs, got the wrong die or something like that, it's that operator's fault. It's the machine's fault. You're just dealing with it, you and your insurance company. If you do a splice, the wrong splice on the right rope, which people do on a, seems like, daily basis, which is made for uh, interesting court cases, um, that's about what you did and thought or didn't do and didn't think, right? So, yes, you can do that, but it, it, uh, it does take care and study and practice don't do your first practice splice on the actual shroud you're going to put on your boat you no know? no of course i want to <laughs> i want to buy some material and practice and practice is what practice, i'm thinking uh, yeah either get it destruction tested or send it to somebody who knows what they're looking at i, I do that I provide that service um to say yes this is a good splice do them like this and you're all right or change this little detail you might want to watch out for this stitching pattern for instance you can weaken a splice from bad stitching mm -hmm. um and weaken it tremendously from, by being too, you know, aggressive with the stitching because you distort the fibers. Right? Ah, okay. Uh -huh. Weaken it if you use the wrong fibers. Don't use spectra twine on spectra rope. It just cuts through the, the rope twine, oh. uh, for instance. So little details like that are still there. So I, I say, yes, the do-it-yourselver can, can make this work um, like days of old. But um, along with that privilege comes that responsibility. We all need to be involved and and make this right. And then the big responsibility then is understanding it well enough, practicing it well enough that you can hand it on to somebody else. You can keep this gift moving, which is a happy thing, even happier than turning out your own shrouds. All right. Well, if you're ever doing a workshop on doing these splices, I want to come up to it. So Okay. All right. I'll, I'll keep, under, keep it in mind. All right. Thank you, Brian. I could get, we could go on for another two or three hours, but you got to earn a living, and uh, and yeah. and I'm going to break this up into two or three podcasts because we've gone okay. on for about an hour and a half now. And it's, I see that now. Yes, we did. Well, that's fairly amazing. It's, well, it, it's great, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. You're uh, you 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 live in my mind all the time when I'm on my boat, and your book <sighs> is sitting there prominently. Okay, so. good. Oh, I, I'll say in, in, in parting uh, that I guess I've been doing some more writing lately. Um, 
Ocean Navigator magazine mm -hmm. at some point in the future. I don't know when. We'll be publishing a piece I wrote about sailing the James Craig from uh, Sydney towards Hobart um, uh, this, this, just earlier this year. Um, the article is about a square rigger as a sailing machine. It's the technical side of you know, how, this, how this thing gathers and redirects energy, basically. Um, watch for that. All right. All right. All right. Thank you, Brian. Yes, sir. Keep in touch. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Would you do me a favor and go into the iTunes directory, the podcast directory, find my podcast and give it a five-star rating and write a positive comment? There's been a, it's been a long time since I've had any comments on the podcast and, and they do motivate me to keep going. So if you do me that favor, I would appreciate it. And also, if you have any friends that might be interested in listening to this podcast, let them know about it. And finally, if you have any questions or thoughts of topics that I should be covering, drop me an email, franz at medsailor.com, or use a contact form at the website. Thanks for listening. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>